Shalom, and welcome to Via Hafta Yisrael, a Hebrew phrase which means you shall love Israel. We hope you'll stay with us for the next 30 minutes as our teacher, Dr. Baruch, shares his expository teaching from the Bible. Dr. Baruch is the senior lecturer at the Zera Avraham Institute based in Israel. Although all courses are taught in Hebrew at the Institute, Dr. Baruch is pleased to share this weekly address in English. To find out more about our work in Israel, please visit us on the web at loveisrael.org. That's one word, loveisrael.org. Now, here's Baruch with today's lesson. The title of this study is Truly Forgiven. And how marvelous it is when we are in need of forgiveness because we wronged someone, we've insulted that person, we've done or said something that we ought not. And we realize that. And we truly, genuinely seek someone's forgiveness. Now that's a right thing to do, but how wonderful when that person that we've offended will respond to us by saying, I forgive you. When one forgives, that is a manifestation of love. And love, the Bible says, covers a multitude of sins. That means love is powerful. And therefore, we see how to forgive by, by studying the character and the behavior of God in his word. And that's exactly what we're going to do into this evening's study. So take out your Bible and look with me to the book of Psalms and Psalm 51. Now, many of the Psalms are written by David. We've studied many thus far. We've seen the last few were written by others, by the sons of Korach, by Asaph. And now in this Psalm, we're turning back to a Psalm that is authored by David at a very significant time in his life when David has failed and he's failed miserably. He is guilty. There's no way that he can come up with some, some excuse, some rationale, something that releases him from his guiltiness. And therefore, David, he seeks God's forgiveness. And let me just begin before we open up God's word, encourage you, no matter what you have done, no matter how awful it may be, it is always wise, it is always appropriate, it is always a good thing to do, to seek forgiveness, first and foremost, from God. God is gracious, he is merciful, he is loving. He is compassionate, and God, his nature is to work restoration to his people so that his people and the living God can be one in unity. Forgiveness is very powerful. Now, we're going to see that this psalm, it has an inscription, meaning it tells us some circumstances in David's life why David was led, inspired, to write it down. Also, we know the Holy Spirit led him to write down these things in the ways that he did for us so that the man of God, the woman of God, might be thoroughly equipped 
so that we can behave in this world in a righteous way. Forgiveness restores us to God so that we can live righteously, do what is right in the eyes of God. Well, look with me, and there's some differences in the verse numbers between the Hebrew text and the English. And because this one is, is more different than some of the others, just one verse, I'm simply going to read the verses in Hebrew, and you will be responsible for finding them in the language that, that you're studying from. So let's begin. Psalm 51 and verse 1, where it says, To the chief musician or the choir director, the leader, a psalm of David. So once more, we know without any shadow of a doubt that David wrote this down. Next, we find in this same verse, we find that, that the scripture is going to tell us what's going on in David's life. What were the circumstances that relate to him being led to write down the things that he did? We read where it says, when came to him, and that him would be David. When came to David, Natan, the prophet. Now, literally, it simply says, when came to him, Natan, the prophet. Now, we're going to see that this deals with a very specific incident in David's life, one that is exceedingly well-known. In fact, most people, there's two events in David's life which, which most people know of. One is his victory over Goliath, and the second is a failure. The first one, victorious. Second, utter failure. When he sinned with Bathsheba. And this is what we see here. We remember in 2 Samuel, the event, the circumstances of what took place and how Natan went to David and spoke to him. And it all had to do, next part of the text, when he went. This probably refers to when he had relations with Bathsheba, this married woman, whom in order to cover up this sin, that he created the circumstances, eventually at the end, for her husband, Uriah the Hittite, for him to be put to death. And it's in light of these horribly sinful events, this low time in David's life, that David says, Chaneni Elohim, which means, be gracious unto me, O God, according to your grace. Now, I think it's so significant, so informative, that we're speaking about forgiveness. And the first thing that we're told that David does, having been convicted by the prophet Natan in a, a very visible way of his sins, he seeks God's grace. He says, be gracious to me. This is the word chen. And then he asks for chesed. So be gracious unto me according to your grace. Two different words in Hebrew 
that points to that same con same word that same idea in the new testament with what we call grace so chen ve chesed these two words speaking about the biblical concept of grace now chen speaks of grace chesed speaks of grace but also it manifests and rooted in god's steadfast love chesed is also what must be given for a covenant to be maintained for there to be truly a restoration back to and don't miss this back to the purposes of god so learn a very important principle and this is true in the tanakh the hebrew bible the old testament but especially true for us from a new covenant a new testament perspective and that is this when one seeks grace which is foundational in that gospel message it is so that we can be restored to the purposes of god if you're not interested in god's will then you are not a candidate for god's grace it's very important that you hear this because the gospel message is to those who do not want to continue in sin but rather turn away from sin and when we turn away from sin we're embracing god and that means the will of god so david here the fact that he seeks chesed it reveals to us that david wants grace in order that he could be restored back to the will of god in other words david is truly repentant and then we continue on according to abundance the abundance of your mercy and then he says blot out my transgression now he's not seeking atonement he's seeking something better many times i pointed out that atonement is simply a covering it hides it conceals but the the sin burden is still there it only only delays god's wrath but david is not seeking this he wants god to blot out to erase his sin so that there's no longer any effects of that between his relationship with himself and god he wants no bearers nothing that hinders this full restoration to a covenantal relationship with god and then he speaks about the word harbe some corrected meaning some manuscripts have a a different different uh origin of this word written differently they have the word herev and what's the difference well the word harbe means much and this word could could also imply in the the correction when i simply mean correction other manuscripts have this perhaps a a significant percent of manuscripts and this would lead us to not think about the word much or many but perhaps thoroughly to do something abundantly so it says thoroughly wash me from my iniquity now we're going to see that david is going to use 
three different concepts, three different words for sin. The word chet, pesha, and avon. Chet is usually translated sin. Pesha is a transgression. And avon, iniquity. Now, for our purposes, we're not going to really talk about the subtle differences, perhaps, between these words, but we're just going to focus in on a concept of sinfulness, missing God's mark, transgressing his purpose, being in a position that is not accordance to his will. So David uses these three words repeatedly. Look again at the text. Thoroughly wash me from my iniquity and from my sin purify me. Now, this word for purity, it's the word tahor, and being in that state of purity has to do with being in a spiritual condition where God will bless. When we are impure, when we're unclean, God is not going to bless us. We are going to find ourselves in an adverse situation where the the Prayers that we make are going to be hindered. The, the illumination, the revelation from God, we're not going to be recipients of. We're going to be in a condition whereby it's virtually impossible to hear God, to walk with God, to experience God, to be blessed by God. This is where David is, and he doesn't want to remain in it. One of the great things about David is, David, when he was outside of God's will, he felt it. He was exceedingly sensitive to being removed or being in a condition that was not appropriate before God. And David was quick to repent, quick to acknowledge, quick to confess his sins. And then he says, let's move on to the next verse. He writes, for my transgression, I will know. That's literally what it says. Most Bible would say acknowledge or recognize. It probably has a, a meaning of confessing it public, publicly. I will acknowledge, I will make known my, my transgression. David isn't trying to conceal. He's not trying to justify. He's not making excuses. He's coming clean. He's acknowledging what he has done and how he has failed God and have, has harmed others. Death has been the outcome, both the death of his child and the death of Uriah, the, the husband of Bathsheba. And David has been, for the most part, up until the time that Natan convicted him of that sin, publicly telling him this, David was 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 quiet now we don't know how he felt inwardly what he was going through but when Natan and I say publicly meaning Natan knew it he came and he stated not before a crowd but before David your sin is known God is aware of it God has moved me to come and speak to you about it and therefore David says keep reading my sin is before me always meaning this until david can can experience 
forgiveness. He is not going to know anything other than that guiltiness, that feeling. That sin is weighing heavily upon him continuously. Day in and day out and throughout the day, he thinks about what he has done. And he knows the only way that this is not going to cripple him and render him useless to God is if he experiences forgiveness. So a person, and this has most serious implications, a person who is not a believer in Messiah Yeshua, Jesus Christ, they are in their sin. And that sin is going to not just hinder, but make impossible for them to serve God. Now, can God use anyone for his purposes? He can. God is sovereign. And one of the best examples of that is Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was not a faithful man when he came and waged war against Judah and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. We see many times in the Bible, God uses individuals that are in sin, in disobedience, like Judas, the one who delivered Yeshua over. But we're not talking about that type of being used by God. We're talking about one who wants to submit, one who wants to be blessed by God, having obeyed for the purpose of being, being blessed by, by the living God for faithfulness. One who is in sin can never, ever find themselves in that position. So David comprehends this. David understands this, and he wants change in his life. Next verse. He says something, and this is, is oftentimes misunderstood. In fact, in Judaism, they, they use this verse to say, technically, David didn't sin. Well, this is not the right understanding of it. It says, to you, David is once more speaking, to you and you alone I have sinned. Now, what that means is this. Ultimately, all sin is against God. We are his creation. So when we sin against another person, that sin is ultimately, first and foremost, against God. And it affects our relationship, not just with that other individual, but primarily with God. So this is what he's saying. He's talking about how ultimately all sins are, are a sin against God. And he says, and the evil in your eyes I have done. Now, he mentions evil, and I've shared numerous times that this Hebrew word, hara, the evil, simply means anything, and hear that carefully, anything that is outside of God's will. We may look at it, we may not even recognize that it's outside of God's will. Someone may be doing something that seemingly seems as a good work, but because it does not meet God's will in that manner. For example, someone may make a very nice donation to an organization, a good organization, a godly organization. But if God said, no, I want you to make the donation to this group instead of that group, for whatever reason, and we disobey, that is evil. That meets the biblical definition of evil. So David says here, and this is clearly an affront, a, a, a 
transgression. And he says, the evil in your eyes. Now it's your eyes. It's parallel with you alone. So it's what God alone sees as evil, as sinful. The evil in your eyes, I have done. Therefore, he says, on account of this, you are justified. You are righteous in your word. And you are innocent in your judgment, meaning this. God is, is pure. He is justified. He is right in what he said and the judgment that he has for David. Now, in one sense, that judgment, the child that was conceived between David, King David, and Bathsheba, that child has died. And David is acknowledging that principle that we have mentioned many times, and that's this, that inherent relationship between sin and death. Why is there death in this world? Because there's sin in this world. There is that inherent connection between them. So David is saying, you're right in your judgment of my sin, that death has come about. And then he says, behold, in iniquity, I have been created. Now, this is nothing to do with God, but simply it speaks to David's sinful nature. Behold, in iniquity, I have been created, and in sin, my mother conceived me. This is a unique word for conceived. I'm not going to go into it for a variety of reasons. But it simply speaks about the fact that when a man and a woman produce an offspring, that offspring is produced within a, a, within a framework of, of sin. My children are sinful because I'm sinful. My wife's sinful. We produce, every human being produces sinful children. That's always saying that framework, that, that understanding of humanity. Then he says, behold, truth you have desired in my inner parts. Now, here it simply says, Behold, truth you have desired in my innermost being. Now, why that is, is this. Whatever's there in your innermost beings is what's going to manifest itself through deeds. And then he says, and what's parallel here to that innermost, innermost parts of a human being, it says, and in those closed places. Closed places? Those things that, that are inside that the eye can't see because the skin has, has sealed them up. So it's talking about that inner man, that inner person. So he says, in those closed places, wisdom you make known to me. What David is simply saying here in this passage of Scripture is that he wants truth and wisdom to be, to be placed within him. David knows and understand the connection between what we just said. David says, in sin I've been conceived, I was created in this world, and I have that sinful nature. Instead of sin and, and, and that nature that is not pleasing to you, I want to see truth 
and wisdom. Truth is, is what is right, and wisdom is the ability to demonstrate truth in a given situation. So David is saying in this verse that he wants to obey God. He doesn't want to be, be bound to that sinful nature. He wants transformation. And then he continues by these prayers of forgiveness where he says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. And this word clean is really the word for purity. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be pure. And wash me. And this is a word for literally like washing a garment, but in this case, it's as a spiritual, spiritual context. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. David wants purity. He wants to be spiritually clean. He wants to be able to do the things that God is going to be glorified by and that God will bless. So let's just pause for a moment and ask ourselves an important question. Do I want to do the things that God will bless? See, many times people, they just don't want God to, to come down on them. If, if God isn't going to get involved, if God says, you do this, I'm just going to stand idly by. Many people, many people would behave differently. It's that threat of judgment, punishment, that oftentimes is that incentive not to carry out with those sinful desires of sinful human flesh. But, but David's different here. David is saying here that he wants to be, to be purified, cleansed with hesed so that he will be pure. He wants to be washed and he wants to be made whiter than snow. He says in the next verse, you caused me to hear joy and gladness. He wants a change because now he's not experiencing that. And this leads us to another principle, and that is this. Sin robs, takes away the joy and gladness of, of our life. A person can be in a covenantal relationship with God, praise God for that, through faith in Messiah. But when we sin, that joy, that gladness that God wants us to have, that is an outcome of the, the anointing of the Holy Spirit in our life. That assurance, that peace, that contentment. And he speaks about joy as well. All of that, because of sinfulness, is affected adversely. So he says, you make me to hear joy and gladness. And the joy of my bones, he says, he says has been, been crushed. So he wants to hear these things because the joy of the very, very foundation of his life, that's what he means by his bones, has been crushed. Next verse. Hide your face from before. You have hidden your face because of my sin. And all of my iniquity blot out. Now, what David is saying here is this. Hide your face would be a better way for me to render this. Look again at the text. Haster panecha. Hide your face 
from my sin. Now, we know something. Sin causes God's face to be hidden from us. This is not what it's saying. What it's saying is David is requesting that the face of God, the presence of God, is, 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 not, is not gazing upon his sinfulness. He wants a change to take place. And he wants all of his iniquity, he says, and all of my iniquity to be blotted out. So he wants God not to look at his sin. He wants his sin to be blotted out and no more. What David is, is basically praying for is a new covenant experience where God will not remember our sin anymore. This is what he's asking for. Next verse. A pure heart create for me, O God. And it's important that we read it, exactly what it says. It begins, lave to whore, a pure heart, create for me. Now, it's important that we have for me because David will never be able to create for himself a pure heart. A pure heart is always, always, always the outcome of the work of God. And therefore, a pure heart create for me, O God. And a correct spirit, a right spirit, renew in my midst. So David wants, in essence, to be changed. And he realizes his inadequacy, his inability to change himself. He was conceived in sin. He's living in sin. And he wants God to move through his grace through his compassion, through his mercy, through his forgiveness, in order that David be changed, whereby he is restored to the purposes of God. And I cannot overestimate, and overemphasize would be the better way to say it, cannot overemphasize the importance of God doing this work in, in someone's life. Next verse. He says, Restore to me. This can also be translated for me. Usually restore is to, but we can understand it. Restore for me the joy of your salvation. Very important, your salvation. If we have salvation, it's because the saving God has given it to us. Restored unto me the joy of your salvation. And a generous spirit support me. This word for generous means one who gives abundantly. And David is saying, I need, I am utterly dependent upon your generous spirit. Now, in one sense, the spirit of God carries out the work of God. The spirit of God, he produces the will of God. And what David is saying is that he realizes that it's going to be that generous spirit of God that supports him, that upholds him, that uplifts him, and puts him back in this, this condition, whereby he's experienced that intimacy, this relationship with God. And if this happens, notice what he wants to do. He says, and I will teach transgressors your way. Now, we have to be very careful about something. 
and that's this. Those often who embrace Reformed theology and a wrong understanding of the sovereignty of God, they believe that, that everything that happens is God's will because if something could happen that's not God's will, he wouldn't be sovereign. That is false. Just because God is sovereign does not mean everything that happens happens according to his will. Obviously, what's the number one exception? Sin. God is not part of sin. God never leads one to behave sinfully. Obviously, that would be heresy to say that. But this is what happens. Those of a Reformed theological background, commonly associated with Calvinism, they believe everything happens and it's God. And therefore, they'll say, you know, I sinned, but really this was, was, was God's plan all along. Because having sinned, I have learned from that sin, and that makes me better able to teach others. And they go to this very verse here, and they say, see, David, he sinned. He's praying for restoration. Well, I'll pray for restoration as well, forgiveness and all of that. And then I will be able to teach transgressors your ways because I'm one myself. Well, here's the problem. God does not need sin in order to use us, in order to accomplish some purpose. Never. It is blasphemy to say God needs sin in order that his will can be fulfilled. God is able to, to cause someone to be able to teach highly effectively his truth, his truth about repentance, his truth about forgiveness, when that person has never sinned. Let me give an example. Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus Christ. Did, did Yeshua ever sin? He did not. Was he a perfect teacher? Yes, he was. Never think that, that it is good that I sin because now I'm in a better position to serve God. This is not what David's saying. David simply is saying this, God, restore me because I want to teach transgressors your ways. That's what he's saying. And sinners unto you that they return. David wants to use this experience for good, and God can do that. God can take that which is sinful, that which is evil, and he's able to, to salvage that, utilize that for good. But he is never, ever, ever the cause of sin. Anything outside of God's will, God's not part of it. Can he use it? Yes, he can. The cross is a great example of this, but he does not will this. Now, what oftentimes people forget is the foreknowledge of God. God has perfect foreknowledge. And therefore, he, based upon his foreknowledge, he can behave, utilize that foreknowledge for his purposes. God's free. He can do that. So God, knowing how sinful human beings will behave, God can use that for good, but he's never, ever the cause of anything sinful, unrighteous, anything that is contrary to his will. He's simply not part of it. Next verse. David says, save me from, and the next word is blood in the plural, the mean. 
And this can mean save me, and it could be the consequences of shedding innocent blood. That's one uh, interpretation of that. Another could mean because David has, has done this. He doesn't want to continue. He wants to be changed. He does not want to be an individual that continues in this type of behavior. So he's saying here, God, save me. I think it's best to think from the consequences, the guiltiness of shedding innocent blood, O oh God. And the God of my salvation, notice what he says, the God of my salvation, renew, literally, it's a word for to refresh with joy my tongue uh, of your righteousness. So let me shout my tongue, my tongue shall shout for your righteousness. So David is saying here, O oh God, save me from the guilt of shedding innocent blood. He says, for you are the God of my salvation and my tongue will shout joyfully of your righteousness. Best way to, to understand this verse. When we experience God's salvation, when God saves us from the consequences of our sin, what are the consequences of our sin? Ultimately, death. When God is gracious instead of, of punishing. And the good news for us is the punishment has been taken by Messiah on that tree. So we can have full confidence in this forgiveness, in this salvation, that that guilt is going to be removed from us. And therefore we should shout with, with our tongues concerning God's righteousness. Next verse. My Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Now notice something here. If we look at the last two verses that we've studied, there is a relationship between righteousness and praise. Righteousness is when we do that which God praises, that which praises God and which God sees as approved, right, proper, that which brings God to, to, to see that as a proper good event. And the outcome for those who do righteousness is going to be joy. That's why this word, teranen, it's a word for, for shouting with joy, but it also has a degree of renewal, refreshing within it. Verse 17. Let's go to the next verse. That was my 17th verse. Next verse. For you do not seek, or you do not delight would be a better way to translate that, more accurate. For you do not delight in sacrifice or i would give burnt offering you do not want meaning this this is not what god desires from the beginning we all know the verse of scripture where it says it is better to obey than sacrifice god doesn't need these sacrifices and here the context is those ones for for sin god doesn't need Sin sacrifices. This doesn't excite him, please him. So David says, you do not delight 
and sacrifice, or I would, would give. Burnt offering you do not want. Next verse. The sacrifice of God, the sacrifices that he wants, is a broken spirit, meaning one that's humble, one that understands their spiritual condition, their utter dependence upon God, to move in their life, first and foremost, forgiving, issue forth grace to that person. So a broken spirit, that same word, a broken heart, and the next word, usually translated contrite, means a crushed heart, one that, that, that is down, one that understands their guilt before God. And it says, such things, O oh God, you do not despise. God doesn't despise these things. Now, what happens? We'll look at the next verse. He says, do good according to your will, O Zion. Now, Zion, and I've shared this many times, Zion is a kingdom word. When he says here, do good according to your will, he's saying, bring about a, a kingdom experience. Now, this has big consequences because David is guilty. He has committed adultery. He has committed murder. He has conspired to cover up his sin. He has done many things that are about as wrong as they can be. But yet, David, he knows the greatness of God's grace. He knows the majesty of God's mercy. And he knows the richness of, of, God's, of God's covenant, that gospel covenant. That's literally what the gospel does. It establishes a covenant, that new covenant, between, between humanity and God. Anyone can receive that gospel truth, act upon it. So he says here, do good in your will. Your will is for a kingdom experience for, for me. Do that, bring this about. And he says, build up the walls of Jerusalem. Now, the walls of Jerusalem, notice here that, that Zion, Zion is, is parallel hill here with Jerusalem. And this, this good thing of God's will is to build up the walls. Now, walls, the security. Defend, in other words, the promises that you have made. Jerusalem is a word, it literally is two words put together, which means to take hold of, to take possession of, to inherit the fulfillment of God's will. So, so David is saying, build up those walls, secure that hope for me, God. That's what I want. That's what I want to experience, your kingdom promises. And then finally, let's conclude, look at the last verse where he says, then you will delight in, in sacrifices of righteousness. Now, I would underline these sacrifices of righteousness or righteous sacrifices. These are the one that comes from not any other purpose but acknowledging the righteous God. Understand that the word righteous is a kingdom adjective. Need to know that. 
One of the ways that, that the kingdom of God, one of the primary ways the kingdom of God is spoken of is through the concept of righteousness. That's what's going to be maintained in the kingdom of God perfectly. That's why it says, seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. So righteous sacrifices are those that are acknowledging God properly, not because we have sinned, not because we're guilty, not because we want something or we're doing something that is commanded. We're acknowledging the righteous God. And we do that through a burnt offering. And it's very interesting. The next word, Rashi will say the next word, Khalil, is just, just a, a gift offering. But here's what we see. A burnt offering, one of the things unique about it is that it's all given up. It's all offered up. No one receives back from it. It's totally given to God. And this next word, which is a word that relates to entirety, that in a general sense. So this is what he's saying here, that we need to give everything unto God because he is righteous. Why is he righteous? That's his nature, but God, and here's the key, God makes righteousness. That's what the new covenant does. That's what Messiah entered into this world. And, and when this is established, notice what it says, then they will go up. Who? The people of God. Then they will go up. And this is a word for, for offering up upon your altar bulls. Now, what is a bull offering? It is seen as the most, the largest, the most expensive, the most generous to make. Very few people could do that to offer up an entire bull unto God. And what it speaks about is this. When there is righteousness, there is going to be a godly prosperity. Here again, this is a kingdom context, this last part of this psalm. That people are going to want to have whatever they possess. No matter how expensive, no matter how valuable it is, they're going to want to offer it up to God. That is what, what a righteous relationship with God produces. In the same way that David spoke about God's spirit being a generous spirit, that does the work of restoration, forgiveness, rich in mercy, abundant in, in compassion. Well, in that same way, it produces righteousness in us whereby we will want to offer up to God. Not sacrifices because of this reason, that reason, or some other, but because we have a righteous God and that we will want to give him the very, very best. All that we have because God deserves everything, everything that we are, everything within our possession. Psalm 51, a very powerful psalm, the foundation of which is the changes that forgiveness brings about in a person's life. When you truly know that God, this holy, perfect God, has forgiven you, you will be eternally transformed. Well, I'll close with that. Shalom from Israel. Thank you.
Well, we hope you will benefit from today's message and share it with others. Please plan to join us each week at this time and on this channel for our broadcast of loveisrael.org. Again, to find out more about us, please visit our website, loveisrael.org. There you will find articles and numerous other lectures by Baruch. These teachings are in video form. You may download them or watch them in streaming video. Until next week, may the Lord bless you in our Messiah Yeshua, that is, Jesus, as you walk with Him. Shalom from Israel. Thank <laughs> you.